You've heard it said, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Welcome to episode 30 of What We Believe and Why with pastor, author, and teacher, Dr. George Byron Koch. Today we continue discussing the challenging subject of what we humans know and what we humans are even able to comprehend. <laughs> and in a delightful irony, the more we learn today, the less we may end up knowing. Well, instead of confusing the issue further, let me turn it over to our teacher. Here's George. These last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Trinity, the belief of the Christian community that the Godhead, our one God, is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we have to wrestle with this reality that even if we are exactly right about that number, three, the actual content of the Godhead, it's still above our pay grade. It's beyond our understanding. It's outside of our ability, ultimately, to comprehend. We cannot know what is beyond a human mind's ability to know. Which brings us, at last, to concept and ontology. Now, if you're anything like me, this sounds like it could be really boring. I hope not. I think actually there's going to be some real substance here, which I hope is going to be meaningful to you. And, and here's the issue. Much of what has seemed over the centuries like a vital defense of God or of Jesus or of the Christian faith has, in fact, been a battle of concepts within a philosophical framework that is ultimately foreign to the God who reveals himself in the Bible. And just because these debates have used biblical terms does not make the debates either holy or meaningful. Much serious scholarship has gone into defining and defending the Trinity over the course of many centuries— and that scholarship, it's been valuable in encouraging us to conceive of God as three persons in unending, loving relationship with one another, glorifying each other, edifying each other, working with and through each other. It's helped to remind us that it is in this image that we are made and hence, we should treat each other this same way. But the inescapable reality is that to our human minds, Trinity is a concept. That is, Trinity is a philosophical proposition used to help us conceive of God affirm the authority and divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and guide us in our worship and behavior. Now, I'm not saying the concept of Trinity is wrong, nor that it is just a concept. As deeply real as the Trinity is within the Godhead, there is still an issue here that we need to see and understand. For all of the theology, hermeneutics, and apologetics expended to prove that this concept of the Trinity is right and others are wrong, 
the concept is still something erected within Greek philosophical thought forms and the study of ontology, the study of being, existence, and reality. Here's what I mean. However excellent a job is done in constructing this proposition, this concept of Trinity, it isn't God. And it can't contain or even very well describe God's actual nature. In fact, what God reveals about himself in Scripture, if anything, it upends every human attempt to capture or really understand him. God says, I am that I am. He confuses those at Babel who want to climb up to see him. He says quite explicitly in Scripture, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. He even says that if we were to look at his face, we would die. Whatever it is that he is, he does not play by our rules and will not be confined to our concepts about him. However bright, competent, accurate, and scholarly they might be. I don't want to seem dismissive of the thoughtful and prayerful work of centuries of Christian and Jewish authors, many of whom I find enormously insightful. But my playful little analogy about our dog Freddy and what he understands about his human family It really does parallel our own attempts to know God's nature, except that we are even worse off than Freddy in this regard. The distance between his dog mind and our human minds is tiny when compared to the distance between our minds and the mind of God. That distance is unbridgeable. God himself says so again and again. My counsel to you and to myself, to all of us, is that we keep our confidence and our hubris, our pride, in check when asserting our concept of the Godhead against that of others, both those who believe in Trinity and those who argue against it, including Muslims and Jews, I see Trinity as an insightful means of seeking to respond to God's character, but also as a necessarily weak and doomed attempt to bound or define his nature. It's a concept. It's not God. So we have to kneel and recognize that by God's grace, He has revealed the image in which we are made, that is, to be in loving submission and loving care for one another with a Father, a Redeemer, Lord, Messiah, Son, and a Holy Spirit, all revealed in Scripture, in both Testaments, however we describe these to coexist, relate, proceed, 
or be numbered. I'm not trying to be cute or heterodox here, but rather acutely aware of our own human limitations and therefore humble in our assertions. Christians deduce and conceive Trinity from the revelation of Scripture, and we should, by God's power, do our best to live out its implications and imperatives. But we should not confuse a concept, however well-formed, with the reality of God. Now, at this point, some of you might be getting a bit irritated or worried that I'm trying to toss out a fundamental doctrine of the church, Trinity. And I'm not. That's not my goal, nor is it the point of this line of analysis. It's a different issue. But sometimes it's hard for us to grasp initially. So let me press deeper. Permit me a moment to give a parallel example, because what we are trying to understand is really important. So, imagine that a man, Philip, will be coming to our church. For whatever reason, he's decided to find a new church for his family, and ours is a possibility. I'm told that he's the son and heir of billionaire parents has been to all the best schools, received top grades, and is in charge of numerous international companies. He's married to a rich, equally accomplished wife, and they have children all in private schools. I'm told also that he is so full of himself that there's barely space in a room to be with him. I'm informed that he is rich, smart, powerful, arrogant, and obnoxious. Now, what goes on in my heart and my mind is I anticipate his arrival. For one thing, I'm anxious, not shaking in my boots, but who wants to deal with someone who is rich, smart, powerful, arrogant, and obnoxious? Yet, I'm also thinking, maybe if I'm really nice to him, some of that wealth will come our way. He could help build our new church. I'd even be willing to name the fellowship hall after him. Some in the church hear that he's coming to visit and insist that when he gets here, it be a come-to-Jesus meeting. That is, someone has to call him to account, name his sin for him, to get him straight with God and face to face with his arrogance. Will that be what I do? Will I choose a different path? Well, consider this, the arrival of Philip the billionaire, when we return in just a moment. Thanks, George. Challenging stuff for us to wrap our finite minds around. At the same time, it's reassuring that our God is so much bigger than we could ever comprehend. We'll take a quick break and be back with more. 